Praise the Lord. Thank you, Tony. Good morning, church. It's good to be together, whether you're here in person or joining us online. Psalm 66 says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praises to your name. That's what we're here to join all with all God's people around the world this morning to do. The first hymn this morning is All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. And we wanted to start this morning by asking this question. What does Jesus' name have the power to do? Lift up your voice and give us some examples of those things. Heal. Create. Forgive. Say again. Love. What? Calm the storm. Save. Yeah. Cast away fear. Cast away fear. Say again. Guide you through darkness. Praise the Lord. So good to hear from everybody for those things. Let's stand and praise the name of Jesus.
Please have a seat. Please follow along as I read us in a prayer of confession. Faithful God, we come to you today as a forgetful people. You have been so much better to us than we deserve, faithfully fulfilling your commitment to give us good things in Christ. Yet we quickly forget all the wonderful gifts that you have already given us, and feel angry and bitter when you won't answer our prayers the way in which we want you to. Instead of remembering your deliverance and running to you daily as our shield of refuge, the anchor of our souls, we prefer to remain in bondage to our idols because we love our sins and it seems too hard to fight against them. We doubt your goodness and power many times each day and resent the race of obedience that you call us to run. Father, forgive us. Jesus, thank you for remembering the truth faithfully on our behalf, and that you continue to advocate our cause as our heavenly high priest. We have no other hope, nor do we need one. Holy Spirit, we need your power at work in us to stir up our hope. 
Help us to know and worship our God as he is, the unchangeable, sovereign king who has sworn by himself to save us in spite of our foolishness. Cause us to know the certainty of God's great love for us until we are transformed into people who love him deeply and are able to run the race with strong confidence and joyful hope in Christ. Join me in praying this last request aloud. Open our lips to join the heavenly worship service and help us look forward to the triumphant coming of our heavenly King. Amen. As we have another service today focused on Jonah's prayer from the depths, we want to remind ourselves that God has encouraged us to look at him and to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. Let's stand and sing.
let's read the Apostles' Creed together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We celebrate that with our next song. Oh, uh-huh. 
be seated. We set a target to raise $40,000 to help ministry partners through your generosity. We have raised almost $150,000 in a week. Um, what we've designated for um, efforts in Bolivia that you guys will channel is we have $8,000, $8,000 for you guys to uh, see oh, wow. how it could be used best to free up resources that you guys might have for other things but so we could specifically help. I just keep thinking of, you know, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much Amen. for allowing us to be the conduit of God's provision to mm -hmm. places of of need and um, uh, in our part of the, the world in Bolivia. So we really, really mm. appreciate our, our Wheaton Bible Church family. Buenos, buenos días, hermanos. Uh, aunque no nos conocemos, eh, pero estos tanques de oxígeno nos están sirviendo mucho. La verdad, yo he visto en la iglesia algunos tanques pero mientras no necesitábamos, no, no pensaba de dónde han aparecido esos tanques ahí en la iglesia, pero uh, ahora que mi tía está mal, eh, en realidad nos ha dado COVID a toda la familia, la que está filmando es mi esposa, y bueno, me he puesto a pensar y quién ha traído estos tanques, de dónde han aparecido, y me puse a orar y agradecerle a Dios que que haya habido hermanos de, de los Estados Unidos que hayan donado, han sacado parte de su plata, de, de lo que es de, de cada uno, para ayudarnos. Y en este caso, anoche fui yo a la iglesia a, a traer otro tanque, porque mi tía ya no puede estar sin oxígeno. Le quitamos el oxígeno y, y rápido baja su saturación. Entonces... Bueno, una vez más les agradezco a todos, les agradezco por su cariño. Tal vez no, no nos conocemos, ustedes no nos conocen, pero sabemos que un día vamos a estar con el Señor y ya podré darles un abrazo. Gracias, hermanos. Gracias por su cariño. Por... Que Dios los bendiga mucho. Que Dios les les bendiga un hasta ciento por uno. Yo les ruego, anoche me puse a orar por, por todos los hermanos que, que donaron estos tanques. Gracias, hermanos. Gracias, Greg. Gracias a la iglesia de la IBM y también a los pastores, los líderes. Muchas gracias. Dios los bendiga. Wow. A couple of pictures of how that $150,000 that we raised, <coughs> excuse me, last November is being used by the Lord. <coughs> I'm going to stand here and cough for five minutes. Um, what I want you to know is it's your generosity that made that happen during our missions uh, fest. And that $150,000 is over and above the $2 million that Wheaton Bible Church invests every single year 
around the world globally and here locally that more and more people might come to know Christ and more and more lives might be changed. And this morning, we want to say thank you, as our brother in the video did, thank you to you, the church here, for all you are doing. God the Holy Spirit takes our sacrifice, takes our offerings, takes our generosity, which is an investment in the kingdom of God, which is the way we lay up, one of the ways we lay up our treasures in heaven. And I want to invite you to continue to give and to give generously to the ministries here at Wheaton Bible Church. You can do that online. You can do that in the boxes that are placed in the exits as you leave. But again, let's give glory to God for how he is working through this local church here in the communities around us and around the world. Amen? Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of your grace. We've been singing about your grace. We've been worshiping you because you are a God of grace. And nowhere is that more vividly seen, more vividly demonstrated, more vividly pictured than in the wonder of Jesus Christ becoming a man, living a perfect life suffering, going to the cross and dying in our place for our sins and then being raised from the dead, ascending to your right hand that we who believe might have life in that eternal. Father, words can't express our love for you. Words can't begin to get our minds around this amazing grace that you freely bestow upon us. And so this morning, with hearts of gratitude for the way your grace is working and healing and changing people around the world, we praise you. We thank you for Greg and Faith Hurst in Bolivia for what we've just seen and heard from them. And we pray that you will bless them as they plant churches and minister to Bolivians who are in crisis, who are hurting who are experiencing deep waters. Bless Greg and Faith in that ministry of theirs. Use them in incredible ways. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to give to you as you have given to us, to worship you. And we pray in your son's holy name. Amen. Let's stand and prepare our hearts for the message.
Well, good morning, and welcome again to Wheaton Bible Church. For those of you that are here with us, for those of you that are watching online, I've been praying as we come to this crazy, amazing chapter that God will work in incredible ways in our lives. But before we continue our series on this Old Testament book of Jonah, I want to talk to you about my final Sundays here at Wheaton Bible Church. My last Sunday will be September 19th. We will have a celebration of sorts. Yay, we can't wait to get rid of them. Why did you laugh? (laughs) So my last Sunday will be about two months from now. But the reason I'm mentioning this is because I want you to know that leading up to that, I will preach four weeks, a four-week series, not consecutive Sundays. I'll show you that in just a second. But four weeks on what I wish for you, the great people of Wheaton Bible Church. I want you to think of these as four of my deepest aspirations and longings for you after having ministered among you and served you for the last 27 years. So here's how this is going to look. On August 8th, I'm going to talk about my wish for you, which is confidence in the character of God. Then three weeks later, joy in the glory of God. Then on September 5th, that's Labor Day weekend, love for the Word of God. And then finally, the Sunday before my last Sunday, uh, I wish for you clarity about the role of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. So what I want for you is that you might be confident, that you might be joyful, that you might be passionate, and you might be clear about the things we need to be clear about. And I'm sharing this with you ahead of time so you might know this is coming and you might join me in praying that God will use these Sundays in wonderful ways among us. It'll all begin August 8th. And it'll be one of the reasons why we will be combining the contemporary and the traditional services for this period of time, which will then lead up on on September 26th to Hannibal's installation. So contemporary and traditional will be combined for these weeks. Now having said that, it is my great privilege, it is really an honor as a pastor to come to Jonah chapter 2 this morning, this wonderful short Old Testament book, because Jonah, as we've been singing, is a story of God's grace. As a matter of fact, all the problems in this prophet's life are a result of his failure to understand grace. And in chapter 2, we have one of the most beautiful pictures of the power of God's transforming grace in all of the Bible. Grace is Christianity's greatest gift to the world. It's the greatest gift you will ever receive. Grace is Christianity's greatest gift to the world, a world characterized by ungrace. Beginning with the fall of Adam and Eve until today. 
and continuing it until the Lord returns. And when we come to chapter 2, this wonderful chapter, uh, Jonah is praying. Chapter 2 is a prayer. Uh, Jonah is repenting. Jonah is being transformed by the amazing grace of God as we know it in Jesus Christ. And Jonah is doing all this while he's in the belly of a great fish. And by the way, we know this to be true because Jesus, as I will show you a little later, refers to this as true. Now chapter 2, this prayer, has two parts. Jonah's problem, God's solution, uh, Jonah's failure, God's forgiveness, Jonah's sin, God's salvation. Last week, Hannibal pressed into the first part of chapter 2. This morning, I want to look at the second. So will you stand with me as we read beginning in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 6. Jonah's been swallowed by the whale, and he says, To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He's talking about being in the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. And when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. And here we come, and you may not know this, to one of the most important statements in the entirety of the Bible. I will say... Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Here Jonah gets grace. <coughs> Here Jonah is not merely released from the depths of the ocean, but here in chapter 2, he's released from the depths of his bondage. <coughs> Everything that has happened to Jonah has brought him to this point to prepare him to do the humanly impossible, and that is to go to the evil, to the brutal, to the wicked city of Nineveh, this royal city of the Assyrian Empire, and to call this large city to repentance. Can you imagine? And everything that has happened, everything that has gone in his life is God's grace, the movement of God's grace in the adversity, in the failure, in the difficulty to get him ready <coughs> for God's gracious assignment. But I want you to know the warning here. If Jonah, a prophet, 
who spoke directly with God can be blind to God's grace, as we see in chapter 1, isn't it likely that in varying degrees, all of us, even as believers in Christ, can also be blind to God's grace in different ways in our lives? Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells the story of Ernest Hemingway, the author's mother, a devout believer in Christ. As a matter of fact, Yancey tells us in uh, this story that Ernest Hemingway's grandparents attended Wheaton College. But Ernest Hemingway's mother completely detested Hemingway turning away from Jesus. She despised his spiritual rebellion. And as a result, the mother, Ernest's mother, completely cut him off. Would have nothing to do with him. It got so bad that one year she sent him a birthday cake and a gun. The very gun his father had used to kill himself. Every now and then, she would send him a letter with the list of her demands, things that he must do if they were to reopen their relationship, including things like paying all of her bills and doing this and uh, that. And Yancey, at the conclusion of this story, says, is it any wonder that Ernest Hemingway hated his mother and her Savior? She had received grace, but was blind to grace. And I want to say to you this morning, our biggest problem, your biggest problem isn't your presenting problems, it's your failure to see God's grace in those times when he gives us difficult assignments, especially in those times when he gives us difficult assignments. And I want to suggest we get miles down the discipleship road when we understand there are pockets of blindness in our own lives. So in chapter 1, God says, go to the prophet. The prophet says, no. And here in chapter 2, Jonah the prophet is sinking under the weight of his blindness to God's grace. Don't let that happen to you. So I wonder this morning, do you really understand grace? I mean, we can sing about the wonderful grace of Jesus. Uh, we can talk about grace. We can intellectually assent to it. Do you understand it experientially, existentially? And therefore, to help you this morning, I want to talk about what grace is, what God's grace is. I, I want to talk about how we receive greater and greater grace in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, and then how you know grace is in your life. So let's start with what God's grace is. 
For starters, I want you to understand this is absolutely critical, that grace is a person. It is not an it. It is not an abstraction. It is not a concept. It is not a thing. You will be miles down this discipleship road if you understand that grace isn't an impersonal stockpile of treasure in some remote room in heaven that the angels dole out when you pray, when you and I pray. No, grace is Jesus Christ. It's not an it. It's not a thing. And that means when you pray for greater grace to deal with a difficult child like Ernest Hemingway, a difficult job situation, a difficult period in your marriage, a difficult health situation, a financial situation, and on and on. When you pray, you are not praying for an it. You are praying for a deeper experience of the mercy, the compassion, and the love of God. Grace is a person. It is not an it. Let me show you this. So in the first half of verse 6, we have these pictures of Jonah expressing the reality that he's about to die. The word sank or sinking and being barred in are actually metaphors to pointing to how close to death Jonah really was. But look at the second half of this verse. Jonah says, but you... Lord, my God, he doesn't say, but it. Jonah understands that it is God, the personal, living, transcendent, gracious, merciful God uh, that is rescuing him, that is in the process of delivering him. It isn't luck. It isn't coincidence. As a matter of fact, if you believe in sovereign grace, there is no such thing as luck. You're not lucky today. You've been graced today. And what Jonah is doing is he's going vertical. He's looking. <clears throat> and what does he see? And this is what I want you to see. He sees a person. We see a bleeding and dying and resurrected Savior. So Jonah says, but you, Lord, my God, can you say that? Grace is to God what your heartbeat is to you. Grace is the fundamental, the theologians argue, the central disposition of God. Oh, love is God's holiness incarnated. Do not, do not separate grace. Do not reduce grace to an abstraction. Uh, when you pray for a greater grace, you're praying for a greater experience, a greatest, greater vision of the love and the forgiveness and the mercy of Jesus because grace is a person, our living God. 
But having said that, I need to take this a step further because I need to be more specific. So secondly, I want you to understand that grace is God's undeserved favor. Now we see this throughout these verses that we have read beginning in verse 6, but I want to jump to verse 8. Notice uh, Jonah prays, those who cling to worthless, this is a great verse, pray to worthless idols, turn away, and I want you to see God's love. They turn away from God's love. Now, the Hebrew word behind love is the great, rich Hebrew word hesed or chesed. It's often translated God's steadfast or God's loyal love. It's translated grace. It's translated faithfulness. It means God's mercy, God's kindness. And it's used repeatedly in the Old Testament to describe God's covenant relationship with Israel from the time of Abraham onward. And that, despite Israel's repeated idolatry and sin. Now say you are a boss. So you have employees. And you pay them. Now is that grace? Undeserved favor? No. Your employees deserve it. They've earned it. But let me take this a step further. Say you've been part of a, uh, an adult community or a large group, small group Bible study for years and, and your teacher over these years has done a fabulous job and now she's moving away. And so you all gather together and uh, get a gift for your teacher. Is that undeserved favor? Yes and no. It certainly is favor, but it's not undeserved. So illustration number three, you have a neighbor that's a nightmare. Raise your hand, no, never mind. <laughs> His music is too loud, he's rude, unapproachable, and then suddenly he gets sick and you run errands for him. And you help take care of him. Is that grace? Grace is undeserved favor. And it's exactly what Jonah is experiencing here in chapter 2. It's what each and every one of us in Jesus Christ experience the moment we come to Christ for the rest of our lives while we live here on earth and throughout eternity. Actually, what's taking place with Jonah here and the grace he experiences is a picture of the grace you experience in Jesus Christ the moment you were born again and each and every day of your life. Do you see that? Isaiah says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. I want you to believe that. I want you to know that. God longs to be uh, uh, gracious to you. Grace, <clears throat> another way to talk about grace, 
His grace is the living God continually taking the initiative to bless you. Jesus in the Gospels talks about grace regularly. It's the central theme of the Bible. He tells parables about grace. In one, he tells us the grace of God is like the heartbroken father who runs to the prodigal. In another parable on grace, he tells us that God's grace is like the merciful king who cancels the debt of his servant because it's too large for that servant to ever repay. In another parable of Jesus, he tells us grace is like the kind employer who pays the 11th hour workers the exact same wage as the first hour crew because the 11th hour workers needed to eat just as the first hour ones did. Jesus tells us another parable about grace, uh, likening likening God's grace uh, to this wonderful banquet host who goes out into the streets in search of the undeserving. God's grace is God in his mercy and his gentleness, his kindness and tenderness, always continually taking the initiative Uh, to you and when that clicks and it continues to click in your heart and in your mind the life giving we're talking about the transforming power of God's grace will be now hear me in this and believe this will be like a rocket inside you giving you the ability uh, to transcend the gravity, the downward pull of your circumstances and your sin and the sin of people around you. And like Jonah, in verse 8, you will be a believer who continually smashes your idols. Because you know nothing, nothing compares to the wonderful grace of God in Jesus Christ. I mean, ask Abraham after his failure, Moses after his murder. Ask Joseph after his inordinate pride. Ask Ruth, ask Esther, ask Peter who denied Christ, Paul who uh, murdered believers in Christ. Ask Jonah about God's grace. Do you see it here? Does it capture your imagination? So what is grace? Grace is a person and grace is God's undeserved favor. Now let's go on. How do we receive this grace? Uh, uh, J.I. Packer in his book, it's a book I read as a brand new believer uh, centuries ago uh, called Knowing God has this chapter, wonderful chapter, where he tells us if you're going to experience God's grace, there are three biblical concepts you have to embrace. You have to know and you have to feel. And so much of our problem today is evangelicals. And for one of the primary reasons we are so weak as a 
church and our culture is because we know, but we don't feel. And Packer says you need to know and feel three truths. And the first is this, that I am sinful. So Jonah says, look, you hurled me. Verse 3, I have been banished. What are those? Those are admissions of Jonah's guilt, of his sin. And then in verse 7, he says, I remember you. But commentators tell us the word remember doesn't merely mean recalling or recollection. It's a plea for help. It's an admission of guilt. And to walk with Jesus Christ, uh, to be open uh, to receive God's incredible grace that he continually offers us means you and I have to understand that while we are completely pure in God's sight, we continue to battle with sin each and every day of our lives. So Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit and put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The second thing I want you to understand, the second biblical concept is not only are you able to say, I am sinful, you are able to say, I am unable. I am unable to change my heart. I am unable to change uh, my problems. So when Jonah runs from God in chapter 1, you know what he's doing in that sin? He is dethroning God and enthroning himself. And that's what sin is. From the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to today. Uh, it's why marriages and ministries falter and, and, and fail. It's why Christians become harsh and hard-hearted and indifferent because sin seduces us to be self-reliant. I know what's best and self-sufficient. I can handle this. And we've lost the ability in our ungraced culture, our ungraced world, in our works-oriented, performance-oriented, achievement culture, to continually say as followers of Christ, you know, I'm unable to live this spiritual life. Over the last weeks, I've had X in my life. We all have X's in our lives. And X was a situation that really frustrated me. It frustrated Rhonda. And when Rhonda and I would talk about X, we would just increasingly frustrate each other. I did everything in my power to resolve X, but I couldn't. And I found myself slowly on the inside becoming angry and anxious. And then the light was turned on, and it clicked. And I realized before my living God, I was completely and totally unable, powerless to change this situation. And I said, here, God, you take it in your sovereign grace. 
And two things happened. God gave me a remarkable peace. A a, a rest. And I was no longer angry and I was no longer anxious. And within 36 hours, someone called and X went away. Can you say, I am unable? Or do you say out of self-reliance, I know what's best out of self-sufficiency, I can handle this. Uh, To be able to grow in grace requires the the experiential knowledge that, man, I'm riddled with sin. I got it here, here, and I am powerless to change so I cast myself on your grace. Third, that I am saved at enormous cost. Enormous cost. The cost of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. Now, I need you to bear with me for a moment. Jonah says, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Jonah had just said the same thing in verse 4. So twice in this short prayer, uh, Jonah says he's praying to the holy temple. Now, I can't quite figure out uh, how he knew direction inside the belly of a fish. Oh, I'm going to pray this way. No, that's not. I'm going to pray this way. Uh, The um, whale uh, moves up. I'm going to pray down this way. How do you pray toward the holy temple? Directionally, you don't. It's a metaphor. Because Jonah knew that the Old Testament temple was the earthly residence of the living God. And Jonah knew that inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies, was the mercy seat. Where God promised to speak to Israel. And that once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat because the mercy seat was on top of the Ark of Covenant which contained the Ten Commandments. And when the priest uh, sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, do you know what he was doing? He was symbolizing that the price had been paid for the sins of Israel. That it was the blood on the mercy seat that shielded Israel from the condemnation of the law. That's why the mercy seat was on top of the law. Do you see? Uh, What the Old Testament is teaching us is that it's only when the death of another secures our forgiveness that we can speak with God, that we actually can find forgiveness with God, a relationship with God. And what is Jonah doing when he's looking to the Holy Temple, praying to the Holy Temple? He's appealing to mercy. He's appealing to forgiveness. He's appealing to the blood. Now, he didn't understand all that that meant. But what a beautiful picture of the forgiveness God offers us in Jesus Christ through the death of his son, the blood of his son. God went 
to incredible extremes to give you grace. He emptied heaven of his greatest treasure when Jesus became a baby. When Jesus died on the cross. And when this wonder of Jesus and his humility and his compassion and his uh, 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 gentleness uh, moves us, I I mean moves inside of us, uh, and it becomes beautiful. (laughs) When we understand that we're sinful, when we continue to understand that we're unable, when we understand the incredible price, when all of that uh, begins to uh, to shape us, you know what's going to happen? We're going to take off. Because we're going to become increasingly alive to grace and it won't be an abstraction. So let me conclude now and talk about how you can know as a follower of Jesus Christ that you are growing in grace, that grace is real in your life. I see three marks. Here's the first. You are joyful. All of these come out of verse 9, the last verse in Jonah's prayer. What does Jonah pray? But I with shouts of grateful praise. Now Jonah is enormously joyful because he's, now follow me, because he's enormously grateful to God. In other words, his joy is vertical. It is not horizontal. It is not circumstantial. And all of this, even before He's delivered from the belly of the great fish. In other words, what I want you to see when he says shouts, I mean, he's so joyful, he's so grateful, he's shouting. What I want you to see is this is not a superficial, temporary joy. My team just won. Or did you see my kid hit the home run? Uh, No, this is a permanent, uh, deep, uh, eternal a specific um, joy that's rooted in the forgiveness and the grace of God. And when that kind of joy, I mean this vertical joy uh, that's rooted in gratitude for God's grace, when that kind of joy is real in your life, you will know you're growing in grace. Second, you are sacrificial. And this is the second line here. Uh, Jonah says, but I will sacrifice to you. I will bring offerings. I will uh, uh, make good on my uh, vows. When you and I as followers of Jesus Christ are, are willing to sacrifice, when we're all in for Jesus, when we're generous, when we're evangelistic, when we're loving, Uh, when we are committed to to making disciples. Uh, Grace is becoming real to us. Now let me um, go to the New Testament. Uh, And here we have Jesus' statement on Jonah. Notice what he says. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying, not only Jonah was real, but I am the true and greater Jonah. I mean, think about it. Just as Jonah was thrown into the sea of God's anger and he was saved, 
Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's anger, and we are saved. Jesus is a true and greater Jonah. Jonah was thrown into the sea of God's anger and lived. Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's anger and died that you and I might live. Jonah was guilty. Jesus was innocent. And doesn't what Jesus say here in Jonah pictures point to the infinitely greater, Jonah's resurrection point to the infinitely greater resurrection of Jesus Christ who is now governing the universe at the right hand of God. And when we see Jesus' sacrifice, it makes us willing to sacrifice, willing to go, to give, uh, to love, to serve. When we see Jesus' humility, it makes us humble. When we see Jesus' mercy, it makes me merciful. And finally, you experience rest. You know you are growing in God's grace when you are joyful, you are sacrificial, and you are at rest. In other words, you can say, I'm okay, I'm satisfied, I'm good. Now here we come to this famous verse. Some people say this is the most central verse in the Bible because it expresses the Bible's central theme. My favorite verse in all of Jonah. Jonah says salvation is of the Lord or in the INV comes from the Lord. Now the prepositional phrase here is a phrase of possession. Here we have this incredibly strong statement of the sovereignty of God. And, and what is Jonah saying? Is that God possesses salvation. That salvation belongs to God and only to God. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is totally, it is 100% God's doing. God doesn't save you partly and you partly save yourself. No, salvation comes from the Lord. It's a theme of the Bible from the beginning to the end. It's all grace. And so as a believer, you continually tell yourself, man, look what God has done for me. Look what God, in light of what he has done, will continue to do for me. And one day, it will explode in heaven. And so you say, my God has established his throne in the heavenlies, and his sovereignty rules over all. My God works all things together for good. My God, with Jesus, has freely given me all things. My God will make sure that nothing will ever separate me from the, his love. And when that grace and that compassion and this mercy floods our heart, it gives you rest and you will know you are growing in God's grace. And that's Jonah chapter 2. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we worship you and we adore you for all you have done for us, all you are giving us. And we marvel at this picture, this gracious deliverance, this mercy, this forgiveness that comes to us in Christ. Oh God, open our eyes. 
our hearts, that we might be people who live in light of the grace of our living Father. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's word together. Now, before our benediction, I want you to be aware of some additional scheduling things, as you can see on these slides. Some of these I have mentioned, but I want you to know that beginning on August 29th, we will launch kids' ministry in both hours. Then on the 29th, we'll begin this uh, celebration of our ministry moving into the installation of Hannibal. It's going to be a wonderful time for us as a church. And then um, on, uh, let's see, what do I got here? We have the uh, 26. And what I want you to note is uh, then eventually we will get to two worship services, traditional services in the East and two contemporary here. That'll take place on October 3rd. And having said that, Father, we come to you and ask uh, that your face would shine on us. Your face is a biblical metaphor for your person, for your grace. That just as the sun shines on the earth, you would continually fill our lives with your grace. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would enable us to increasingly see the wonder of Jesus. 
And all God's people said, amen. You guys have a great rest of the day. Thank you for worshiping with us.